This is a special episode of the Immunology Podcast, Immunology 2023, Day 3. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rod. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast. We're having conversations with immunologists. We're back with our third episode covering all the highlights of Immunology 2023 here in Washington, D.C. Brenda and I have had a bunch of fun attending, getting to meet you all, but it's not over yet. If you're looking to find out what we're up to at the podcast, follow us on Twitter at at Immunopodcast. You can find episodes covering all of the two previous days of the meeting at www.immunologypodcast.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Today, we'll again be discussing some of our favorite sessions throughout day three of the meeting. So if you were in another session and weren't able to attend the meeting, we've got you covered. We'll be kicking things off in just a minute, but before we get to that, whether you're looking to attend an immunology conference this year or to expand your network, make the most of your experience by downloading Stem Cell Technologies collection of tools to help you prepare for your next event. The downloadable checklist and guides include recommendations on how to get ready before attending conferences, tips for networking, best practices for your LinkedIn profile, and more. Download the conference toolkit at www.stemcell.com forward slash conference hyphen toolkit. All right, Brenda, it's day three. Day three. Exciting. Men, so much science, so little time. I know, I know. How are you holding on? Uh, I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a little deep in the conference mode. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Yeah, me too. Well, we're, we're you know, recording at the end of day three. That means tomorrow's Mother's Day, and flowers are already delivered to my wife and Aww. my mother. That's so nice. Very well. I want to wish my mom happy birthday. And you know, happy birthday, happy Mother's Day. But you know what also? It's exactly 33 years to the, po- to the point she became a mom. It's my birthday tomorrow. I know. So what did you get me, Jason? You have to wait until tomorrow, but I actually planned something. Really? Oh, my God. Dear listeners, I'm very excited. Well, I'll tell you tomorrow what I got for my birthday. I, I couldn't get everyone at the conference to sing happy birthday. Oh, that would be amazing. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Well, maybe some other time. Or at least a symposia. But speaking of symposia, what did you watch, Brenda, here oh. today? Well, first of all, I just want to say that yesterday I went to Doug Green's uh, presentation. He was a guest at the podcast, and I really like his story. So one of the, the first story he, he shared, which I had been following before, but I think it's super cool. Um, he talks about the importance of spatial kind of localization of proteins and, and, and transcription factors in activated uh, T cells. And he shows that particularly for the case of MIG, um, with MIG, of course, as any protein gets translated in the cytoplasm because it's a, tra- it's a transcription factor, it needs to be shipped into the nucleus to act. But then as uh, T cells are activating, so they may make a synapsis with a DC presenting an antigen, and then this synapsis generates a whole you know, change of the cytoskeleton of the cell and a polarization to the synapsis, and a bunch of this MIC gets kind of brought to that side of the cell. So you end up with a situation in which a CD8 cell ends up having a one side that is on the synapse that is kind of higher on MIC. And then also, he also saw his higher on CD8 co-receptor. And then the other side has less. And this actually, when the, once the cell, you know, divides, this, um, this imbalance stays. And then you end up with two daughter cells. One of them has more CD8 and more MIG, and the other one has less. And MIG is associated with effector function and proliferation. And so it has, you know, it has a lot of downstream effects that are uh, associated with effector T cells. And then what he shows is that 
the cell that has the mic has a tendency to become an effector cell, whereas the other cell that gets the less of the mic has a, is more prone to becoming a memory cell. And this is because of this, at least in part, because of this distribution, this physical distribution of proteins when the division of the cell happens. So I thought it was really cool. I had already kind of knew that story. He talked about it, was very articulate about it. And I think a lot of people were very interested. So uh, kudos to Douglas Green. It was really nice to also have him in the podcast. Uh, so that was that was yesterday, though. And also yesterday, there was a very special guest, Anthony Fauci. For those who don't, who live in a, inside a box, uh, the former director of the of the NIAID. NIAID. And of course, the face of the COVID response here in the U.S. Yep. So how was it? How was the talk? was good. He went over kind of lessons learned from the pandemic from a very biological perspective. As others said, I don't think anything was really surprising, but putting it all together was interesting to see. And so I really, I thought, I thought it was well done. It was, all, it was also nice to see a bunch of scientists, um, fan, you know, having a little uh, fan experience with, with the chief scientist of their own field who had such a public job recently. So it's much, much different than, you know, usually what you get politically. Okay, so which talks did you go today? So I mostly did major symposia C on inflammation and injury and other fun things and some innate receptors. So we had we had Ruslan Menzitov, very famous immunologist, talking about type one versus type two inflammation after injury. And he made he was talking about in a model system with his last B protein, which comes, I believe, from Pseudomonas that if you get a high dose of it, that prompts a type one response, but if you get a low dose of it, it prompts a type two. And then interestingly, if you get repeat exposure to type one, it's protective, so repeat high dose, that has that protective effect, you develop tolerance, you respond better to damage on the second go around. But that if you do repeat type two, that's allergy. And so he's trying to understand some of the mechanisms that are driving this. And at least it appears that he hasn't figured out the dose-dependent effect, but either way, STAT-6, um, it's driven by a STAT-6 system. The STAT-6 knockout mice are protected, like they have last B exposure, and similarly, damage is not required in the adaptive immune system. So what he was able to show as well is that sometimes the tissue damage is working through a heme recognition system by the NRF2 pathway. So when you have tissue damage, you have blood lysis that releases heme. And so there's this IL-413 STAT-6 pathway is an antagonist to the heme pathway. And so that's why STAT-6 knockout have better response is they're going to sense the heme better. Uh, and so if you sense heme, you know there's an injury. Your body tries to figure out what to do about it, repair itself, develop protective effects. So that was an interesting to know that injury was running through a heme sensor. It makes sense. You know you're bleeding because you look at it and go, I'm bleeding. Your body does the same thing. I like the parallels that way. Um, next up was Louis Barrio. He was looking at genetic and epigenetic determinations of inter-individual variation in innate immune responses. So he's a, he's a geneticist. And long and short, he was really looking at this, the fact that 60,000 years ago, a group of humans left Africa and we're all descended. If you're not of African descent, we're all descended from that same group, which means there's a genetic not, I don't want to say break, but a genetic drift that you can track from that event from people moving to new antigen exposure. And so they found that there is in African ancestry a stronger inflammatory response towards, generally speaking, and especially towards listeria and salmonella. 
And so there's been an adaptation in people of European ancestry against those that have less inflammation. And interestingly, uh, he also talked about the Neanderthal thing, which is this Neanderthal haplotype gene. You know, we human Homo sapiens encountered some Neanderthals, and there was some uh, breeding that occurred. And there, you know, there's, we all have a little Neanderthal DNA in us if we're from European ancestry. How it got there, you know, ask grandma. Um, <laughs> great, 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 great grandma, most likely. <laughs> yes. Um, but there's a specific gene, OAS1, that has a survivorship bias against Yersinia, the Black Plague, and it protects against COVID-19 susceptibility and severity. And there's also there's also epigenetic differences as well. So that's a fun one, just, just weird, nerdy, evolutionary yeah. immunology. Um, Tim Sullivan talked about uh, transcription epigenetic re regulation of NK cells. So from here, really, uh, he went into a couple different things in some older papers that he kind of talked about. But what I thought was really fun was that he looked at man flu. So if you're familiar with man flu, man flu is the notion that men, when they get sick, whine and complain more about how much it aches. But it actually has to do with sexual dimorphism and cytokine production and activity in immune cells. And so apparently men have more NK cells, but each NK cell produces less interferon gamma, but on net you have more interferon gamma from the total extra immune cells. Um, so it's not hormonally driven, and so that means it has to be genetically driven. And obviously women, they have two copies of everything because the Y chromosome is just effective, but to make sure there's chromosome or genetic balance, women undergo selective um, X-linked silencing but some genes stay on no matter what. So not everything gets silenced. And so he looked at what was conserved, and this is a gene called UTX, conserved X-link escapee is a gene called UTX. It binds and demethylates DNA, and using a cut and tag approach, because you can't get a lot of NK cells, so it's different than just a chromosome mapping you typically do, like a Cytov or something like that. So instead, they, they did this to standard this system where we could see where it binds you cut it and then you see that tagged region in sequence so you can see where it's tagging and lo and behold the binds the interferon gamma promoter and its absence has decreased accessibility to the genome for interferon gamma which is why each of a male's nk cells produce less interferon gamma thank you very much genetics and then we had i ling lim uh, she looked at pre-birth immune education just starting her own lab and in that one, she was able to look at uh, this notion that transient maternal infection elevates Th17 accumulation only in the gastrointestinal tract of offspring, and it happens during weaning and persists into adulthood. Doesn't matter who delivers the baby, right? It happens what uterus the mouse is in. So if you take an infected mommy and then put a you know, do an embryo transfer into that after the infection, that still passes the phenotype. And they found that it's a serum soluble factor is enough to transfer the effect. So if you just take the blood from some uh, um, a mommy that was as and put another mommy that has the baby in it, right? So infected female and then transferred over, it'll transfer. Um, it's IL-6 and microbiota dependent and maternal IL-6 exposure alters the offspring's intestinal milieu and promotes a tonic response to the microbiota through the fetal gut having an IL-6-6 STAT-3 axis. Now, it enhances survival with infection, but makes outcomes of chemical colitis and wound repair worse. Um, 
And then in this talk, I, we saw one of our guests, uh, Shruti Natick, came on and talked again, talking about IL-17 and skin organoids, talked about her model of um, the basically recapitulated psoriasis in a skin organoid system. And they found that what was really cool is that if you trigger a cell with IL-17, these organoids, they have a second response that persists higher, so a tonic increase in activity. You can take the cells, you can passage them, split them up, mix them up, flip them around, reverse it, do the whole Missy Elliott thing on them, and they still maintain this effect after passaging. But they looked at human, because they, they developed these skin models from actually uh, foreskin discards from you know uh, circumcision. So you get human genetic variants, and they find the amount of this is variable. So there's some either genetic or maternal imprinting, like we just discussed as well. Then lastly, I went to one of my old lab colleagues' talks on T-cell migration, and she presented her work. It was actually a chunk of my work from back in the past that's finally being presented on a family of protein called TIP proteins, which are proteins that regulate phospholipid signaling by binding and holding PIP2 in the cytoplasm of cells. And then they can control the leading and trailing edge during chemotaxis by regulating the, the PI3K Tip, uh, PIP3 wave, and so they, 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 it has some pretty novel biology there that she was talking about. So that was, that was my day. Very cool. I really like those talks. So very nice. I, so I also went to a bunch of talks, and I first started, so I did also a little bit of a session hopping, and I started with the uh, SITC Symposium, the Society for the Immunotherapy of Cancer, um, and I attended the, the talk of Lisa Butterfield from University of California, San Francisco, in which she was looking at the neuritic cell dysfunction and what things we can learn to make better vaccines. Like He was basically talking about the idea that um, autologous uh, DC vaccination, that is when you, for example, you have dendritic cells and you load them with with, with uh, an antigen or a lysate and so on, you expand them and you bring that to the patient to try to uh, educate the immune system, has, you know, really shown some success, especially there are some recent uh, uh, clinical trials uh, with uh, from some solid cancers that have shown uh, a level of, of um, protection or like therapeutic efficaciousness and so but she was looking into why some of them don't work and why also when you get more dendritic cells from actual patients they're also usually less efficacious and dendritic cells derived from monocytes of healthy people of healthy donors basically kind of long story short she did vaccinations with monocyte derived dendritic cells that were induced with gmcsf and she um loaded this dendritic cells with antigen using adenoviral transduction and she showed that you know in in such a system uh these dendritic cells are educating cd8 cells they become which are you know critical for their response and um she she followed these responses and she again she sees that sometimes this this dendritic cells are not really working properly and she looks like there's one of the main issues with, with kind of faulty dendritic cells has to do with NF-kappa-B signaling and the correct translocation of NF-kappa-B into the nucleus of the, of the dendritic cells. Uh, this results in reduced eicos-ligand expression, and this correlates with lower uh, T-cell responses of CDA T-cells in vivo. And she um, did this couple of assays in which she was looking into uh, 
metabolism of these dendritic cells. She mentioned uh, uh, an assay called Zenith, uh, which is based a cytometry-based assay to look into metabolic uh, markers and metabolic uh, function of, of cells, and also mass cytometry, when, in which is profiling metabolic enzymes and transporters and receptors, and try to use that to characterize the metabolic status of the cells. And she shows that these dendritic cells that seem to be tolerogenic, that are not properly initiating a, an immune response, have uh, are characterized by an increased glycolysis, glucose uptake, and lactase secretion, which also is uh, usually considered immunosuppressive. And this this is the case also in melanoma patients when you d derive uh, monocyte derived dendritic cells from these patients compared to healthy donors, you see that there's this particular uh, metabolism that is uh, different and seems to be problematic. And she shows that this dendritic cells are deficient, and this deficiency kind of already stems from the monocytes that are used from the patients. Then another talk was also very interesting from Stephen Schoenenberger from La Jolla, uh, in which he was looking into anti-adaptive uh, cell therapy using the antigen-specific CD4 T cells and trying to understand whether the, uh, the presence of new antigen-specific CD4 cells is helpful because they are really are uh, educating the cytotoxic T cells and, and the B cell responses or whether we know that sometimes CD4 cells are known for uh, driving direct uh, cytolytic function. So they have this mouse uh, model, this tumor for mice, uh, called a murine squamous cell carcinoma model that was uh, MHC2 negative under every circumstance. Also in the in the in the uh, presence of interferon gamma, which is a situation with some tumors upregulate up MHC2 expression, and he shows that in this case CD4s are important for. Uh, mediating the response, so a, a proper uh, immune response against this tumor requires both CD8 and CD4, and he shows that this is because the CD4s are uh, the, the function of the CD4s because they cannot be cytolytic because they there is no MHC2 for them to to respond to. They do are they are very important for uh, initiating or for for kind of training the CD8 cells and their function in the tumor. And he also showed, no, in, in, he, he was really trying to kind of show the best practices to generate such a CD4 uh, neoantigen-specific T cells. And, and unsurprisingly, he shows that there are certain cytokines that are better, IL-15, IL-7 versus IL-2 makes more durable uh, CD4 cells that can uh, generate uh, kind of stem cell memory cells that are sustain a longer, more sustained uh, response. They show so, and basically, if you transfer these neoantigen-specific CD4 cells, the tumor can be eradicated through uh, training of CD8 cells in a CD40-dependent uh, mechanism. And also, he is looking for postdocs, so Stephen Schoenberger at La Jolla. So if you like this topic, maybe reach out to him. Um, then I'd hop to Major Symposium D, uh, topic aging, obesity, and adverse immune responses. But I stayed mostly for the obesity and a little bit for the aging. So uh, first, so the first talk I, I saw was from Samir Bayas. He's at Coldstream Harbor Lab. And he uh, was talking about dietary regulation on... Uh, the immune immune cells and stem cells in the gut, and he um, has already had some publication which he showed that high fat diet affects the stem cells in the gut and can induce 
proliferation uh, through a um, PPR delta activation uh, and wind activation from PPR delta uh, signaling. And this is induced by uh, fatty acids in a high-fat diet. And in, in his previous work, he has shown that this can initiate or sustain tumorigenesis in the gut. And he, he proposes this as a kind of a mechanism to connect high-fat diets with increased uh, intestinal cancer. And so uh, in his lab at, at Cold Spring Harbor, he's continuing with this work with him trying to understand how does the diet influence the, the, the immune system being surveillance and the characteristic, immune characteristics of uh, epithelial cells in the gut. And he shows that also high-fat diets downregulate MHC2 expression, which can happen in gut epithelium, and that this also has the added effect of reducing immune surveillance on these potentially cancerous cells. And he had a, uh, he also presented he uh, kind of a comprehensive atlas. He's working on this big project in which he's uh, feeding many mice with different types of kind of more or less defined diets and trying to understand how these different diets affect the microbiome and also the compensation of the immune system uh, after they saw if they feed them fat, if they feed them particular oils, fish, or trying to understand how diet affects uh, these aspects of, of the gut immuno- immunity. And he he also kind of find very interesting uh, one particular um, type of, of nutrient, uh, in this case, uh, omega-6 uh, fatty acids, uh, which he shows that promotes uh, regeneration of gut uh, stem cells. He does some organoid experiments first, but then he shows also that uh, it increases uh, kind of recovery after um, damage of, of stem cells in the gut. And this is through uh, arachidonic acid, which is a metabolite from uh, these omega-6 fatty acids. And that through prostaglandin signaling, this generates epigenetic modifications that mediate stem cell plasticity and uh, promotes regeneration and healing in the presence of arachidonic acid. Very interesting and, well, of course, work in progress. Did, did he talk about omega-3s at all as well? No, he focused on omega-6 here. Um, his talk had a lot of data. I'm, I'm kind of picking up some of the, 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 the parts, but he had a lot of different topics. His lab is very working on a lot of different angles, connecting uh, nutrition and immunity in the, in, the, in the gut. And so then also, I think a highlight was also the, the presentation, uh, presentation from Susan uh, Cake from Salk Institute. Uh, she was looking into metabolic control of CD8 diesel exhaustion. And I think it was really cool because she was looking into how acetyl-CoA or like acetyls in the metabolism can affect epigenetics. So basically acetyl-CoA, you know, you, for, for, is, a, is a cofactor that it's very important in many things in metabolism, both for a purely metabolic f- function of like energy, pr- uh, energy generation. Acetyl-CoA is generated both from, the, from glycolysis, from the, the Krebs cycle, and it's used to, uh, to, it's burned and it's basically transformed into energy. But then also acetyl-CoA is used to acetylate histones. And this, of course, modifies the epigenome of a cell. And she shows that so there's different different enzymes are capable of generating acyl-CoA from different sources. On the one hand, you have the, I forgot the exact names of the, so this is synthetases. Uh, One is a synthetase that generates acyl-CoA from um, acetyl, and then another one that generates it from citrate. And she shows that 
exhausted cells have uh, a lower uh, proportion of one of the the, the acetyl-CoA synthetase that makes from acetate is reduced. And she shows that having different enzymes that make acetyl-CoA from different substrates is related to the, the exhausted uh, status of the T-cells. And that then um, this affects how the acetylation of the uh, histones uh, happens. And this is related to either the development, the further development of an exhausted uh, status or the maintenance of a more of a progenitor exhausted phenotype that allows for for more. So basically, effector T cells have a, a, this one of these synthesizes a ACSS2, and this protein is decreased in exhausted CDA T cells, and in these cells is uh, acetyl. I think it's lyase is uh, expressed as maintained, and this drives different a different epigenetic program compared to uh, the previous one because it does not metabolize acetate as well as uh, in the case of effector T cells that are not dysfunctional. And so exhausted cells prefer to utilize glucose for histone acetylation, whereas effector T cells rather use acetate and that this correlates with their uh, the kind of epigenetic uh, and histone acetylation that they are able to do. So I think it was, it was a very, very, very complex talk, very, but very interesting. All right. That sounds... Like I have to stop eating gelato or something and, you know, less fat. Yeah. You, gotta, you are what you eat. That was that was one of the takeaway messages from, from those sessions. Anyone who's done carbon labeling knows that. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> Certainly. So, yeah. Very, it was a very exciting third day. Yeah. Well, you had DCs in DC. DC in D and, you know, I tried to move beyond the T-cells, so I went to see some dendritic cell action, too. I'm very proud of you. And you even did elementary canal work with diet because, you know, it all acts on the gut. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that I can never get away from that, can I? You're at immunology conference. The intestine is everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that brings us to the episode of our latest immunology 2023 episode here. We'll have another one tomorrow. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Adam you know Podcast to find out what we're up to at the meeting and visit us at the Immunology Podcast booth if you're here on the exhibitor floor where you can win a prize and find out how you could be featured on a future episode of the podcast. Check back again tomorrow and we'll be recapping another day of the Immunology 2023 conference. See you then. <laughs>